Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is Greg Rains, the CEO of TAG Advisors. Thanks for joining us, Greg. You're welcome, Amy. It's good to be here. So exciting to be able to present you to our listeners. I know your story and the advice that you are sure to give will be highly inspiring. So let's start off with your journey. Tell us your story. How'd you get your start? And how did you get to where you are today? The spring year, my senior year in college, I took an investments class and kind of had an epiphany of thinking that this business would be one, very interesting, and two, would be a way to help others. So that was kind of where it started. What did you think you were going to do before you took that class? What was in your mind before that? No idea. No idea whatsoever. Key for the listeners is it's okay to have no idea and then just keep your eyes open, right? Yeah. I had no idea whatsoever. And I, I thought, I imagined myself getting an MBA, going to work in the wirehouse space, but married, one daughter, negative net worth. I didn't think that lined up very well. So I wound up getting in the insurance business where I lived in the Shenandoah Valley. And I was always extremely independent. So I made it in that world for about four years before I went completely independent in the insurance business. So it was painful getting started. And it was painful again four years later. In fact, I worked at night on weekends in a grocery store to make money when I started over again after four years to go independent. So independence has always been a strong value and predicate for me in my career. And here you are today. So from that point, how long did it take you to get to a place where you felt like you didn't have to work at a grocery store? And then walk us through how you got to where you are today. You're building, you've built a really successful organization. Well, well, my daughter, Christy, who's one of our advisors, reminds me routinely, she can remember me having to push start my car when I left client appointments. So, you know, I, I didn't work at the grocery store for very long, but there were still times early on where it was difficult making everything work and meet. And, and you know, to, to recognize that to some degree I put up with those things and my family did because of the independent nature that I had, to some degree sobering, just realizing that I was so principled in the way that I thought it should be done that I kind of put up with that. I don't think about it very often and I don't share it very often, but certainly at the difficulty that it was getting started, it's, it's something that carried me all the way to the present because now I don't have that difficulty, but remembering how hard it was makes me appreciate, you know, what we've accomplished together as an organization now since then, over the decades. So independent insurance to tell us the journey into wealth management. Yep. Independent insurance. 83, I started. 87, went independent again and got my securities registration after that and became a branch manager in 96. So 40 years in the business and 25 years as a branch manager at this point. And you've built a highly successful organization, as I said. So how would you articulate the secret to that? If we've got listeners who inspire to, well, maybe 
start by telling us a little bit about your organization. How many financial professionals are you helping out today? And those kinds of things. But then what's the secret to getting to where you are now? Today, we have between 315 and 320 advisors. We finished the year last year doing 58 million in GDC. As I mentioned, I've been doing this for 25 years, but I started from scratch. I mean, literally the first year as a branch manager where I started, we did 155,000 of gross dealer concessions. And that was after doing 37,500 through the first six months. So we had a great growth trend going from 37.5 to 155. The next year we did 630 and within four years, Let's see, first complete year was 97. And by 2004, we were doing just over 5 million in GDC. So, and within that broker dealer, that was the largest in the nation. So to go from starting at scratch to being the largest within that organization in roughly seven years was a pretty nice accomplishment. What I found was that my temperament and independence fit very well with the advisors that we worked with. And we would work with life advisors who wanted to do securities. And we would work with independent security professional who also wanted to do life. So we had very much a synergistic platform, which is something that we still have to this day. Uh, in terms of being successful, the, the one thing that I've observed with advisors through the years is the first thing you have to do to be successful is obviously work hard. But after that, is take control. You know, the, the first the first platform, if you will, of being successful is taking control of your world and every aspect of it. So a lot of times when advisors have difficulty early on or for decades, it's because there are aspects of their business they haven't taken control of. Once advisors get to a point where they have control over that world, then the next hurdle to overcome is releasing control and delegating. So you have people who get to a certain level of success by taking control of their world, and then they can't relinquish it by delegating it to other people or, you know, other, whether it's professionals or, you know, administrative support staff, whatever. So to me, that's, that's those two building blocks for professionals are really important because you can become successful to some degree by taking control, but then you have to become successful again by relinquishing control and delegating it to those around you. And I think, knock on wood, I, we were pretty able to do both. I've done things I didn't like doing for years in order to take control. And now I have the luxury of delegating those to other individuals who do, frankly, a better job than I ever would have. But still at this point, you know, there are times where I have to roll up my sleeves and get involved with something that I would have preferred not to do. And at times that I'm not very well suited to do what I'm doing. Although that's getting less and less all the time. Often entrepreneurs are entrepreneurial because of that control portion that you just talked about. And then in my mind, they, many of them hit a ceiling because they can't do the second phase that you just described. And at some point, you know, the old adage that you should hire your support team before you can afford to hire your support team is also a third component of it, right? It's the financial side of it. So great advice there. The other thing I'll just mention, and, and sometimes I think it goes without saying, although I think to some degree you're aware of it, 
if you figure that I started in 83, I'm coming up on 40 years. I have worked easily five weeks in four for 40 years. If you figure that the average is 50 hours a week rather than 40 hours a week, I've worked an extra week every four weeks for 40 years, which at this point means I've worked an extra 10 years. <laughs> it's a good thing you love it. That's what I know. <laughs> well, you know, when you when you've got 10 years, when you have 10 years on those around you that are doing the same thing, it accrues to your benefit. So when I'm teaching, you know, which I've done a number of times, classes within CFP programs, that's one of the things I mentioned. There's there's no substitute for hard work. And and I have peers and individuals that have wondered, oh, you know, how did Tag get to be so big? Well, you know, some of it was just pure hard work. There's no substitute for it. And it's not unusual for me to be making calls late in the afternoon on Friday, knowing that it's unlikely that I'll get most of our advisors on the phone. Good for them. <laughs> Good for them. I, it doesn't create any difficulty for me, but it's a reality that I recognize and I'm comfortable. I love doing what I do. Yes. And that's a good thing for sure. So you touched on this a little bit, but what's the ideal financial advisor look like for TAG? And secondly, I know one of the things you like to do is help them grow their business, but how do you do that? Well, the ideal advisor, you know, if we have 315, 320 advisors, we probably have 300 business models. I mean, it really is all over the map. I like to say that we've got a very wide net. We've got a wide variety of, of advisors and individuals that can fit very comfortably into our world. That's true for qualified plan advisors. It's true for those that are in wealth management. It's pretty easy for advisors to fit into our world, regardless of their business model. The, the one area that, honestly, we may have a little difficulty with is when I talk on the phone with an individual who's been in the business for 30 years and says they, they need help with marketing. We work best with advisors. In fact, our mission statement would look something like, our goal is to become one of the preeminent branches in the independent broker-dealer space, working with entrepreneurial advisors who want to thrive. If you're entrepreneurial and you want to thrive, and that's your passion, that's what you're about, that, that is our sweet spot organizationally. And you know, sometimes it can be effort, but again, when, when, and I know I'm backtracking, but when I speak with someone who after 30 years kind of hasn't figured out how to market, I'm not sure that that's the best fit for them in terms of working with us. And the other thing I would say is that with regional broker dealers going away with the consolidation in the marketplace, to me, large OSJs in the industry are fitting that space at this point. You know, when you think about regional broker dealers, the collegiality, the camaraderie, the culture that they built, that's essentially what we've done within TAG and it's what other large OSJs are also doing. It's a relationship component that is bolted on to all the size, the benefits, the resources and scale that come with being with a firm the size of Cambridge. So you take all that infrastructure, all that institutional value that Cambridge brings, and then you add that relational component to it and the advocacy that we bring. I mean, most of the time, you're, you'll still take my call. Most of the time, <laughs> all of the time. I've been facetious, but there's a value, there's a value to 
the advisor that joins us that knows that we're big enough to reach out when we absolutely need to. I don't think that can be underestimated. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Do you do you guys have any formal practice management approaches for your financial advisors? Well, we have a ton of our advisors that are in RPM with Cambridge and have had very good experience there. The other thing, and I don't know if this is true with other OSJs, but our group is extraordinarily collaborative. They pay attention to what each other is doing. And only with one exception across a base of over 300 advisors could I not sit everyone down with everyone else in our branch. We don't have rancor. We don't have angst. We've got one situation where there's any tension that I'm aware of across the entire organization. And that relational unity, if you will, transposes extremely effectively into collaboration, paying attention to what each other's doing, the willingness to share. You know, we have a weekly call every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And uh, between the cliff notes that we give administratively for working successfully with Cambridge and keeping it in the road, keeping your practice out of the ditch, what we bring to the table in terms of practice management, thinking out loud. And I have done that increasingly. I'm getting to a point in my career now where I'm willing to think out loud. And it's not something I'm imposing on our advisors, but I will say to them things that I reflect on after doing what I've done for 40 years. And amazingly, we've just gotten really, really good feedback from our advisors where they say, man, that was really helpful. And so it's cliff notes, administratively, supervision. We invite sponsors on to talk about what's new in their tool bag. And then we talk about practice management and how to grow your practice. What you've just described in my mind is the way our industry has evolved into providing a model for solos, should they choose to build their business solo or solo with staff, yet have the opportunity to have that collaboration with others. And that's really key. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and not many people talk about it, but a lot of people have been attracted to the independent space because of their bad experience in former cultures. What they find is that when they go independent, and at some point, a lot of advisors will say, yeah, I really like independent, but I don't like being alone. And so I think a key part of what we do as an organization is to provide that sense of community and relationship that at times is absent from this space. Agreed. I know one of the questions, intriguing questions that you like to ask financial professionals is where does it hurt? So tell our listeners, how does that question help you serve those financial professionals? Yeah, when I'm when I'm talking to an advisor for the first time, I actually ask three questions. Where does it hurt? And they'll laugh. So it's a way of getting really good information in a non-threatening way to find out how much pain they're actually in and whether that pain is a driver to them actually looking around, because for most people it is. Most people do not make a decision to join a broker-dealer and the pain associated with that unless the pain that they're dealing with presently exceeds that. So I will ask, where does it hurt? They'll laugh, and then they'll tell me what's the driver or a big part of the driver for their decision. The other question I ask is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we have an advisor today, and I don't say this, I'm sure I'll probably hear this. I was fascinated 
I said, what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, I want to run a food truck. I'm like, then why are we talking? And he's with, he said, he's with us today. And I've never heard anything more about what he really wants to do when he grows up. But it is a great insight into, first question is, what pain are you in? Second question is, okay, where do you want to be five years from now? And how can we help you get to that point? And the third question is, and I actually brought these three questions to our advisors on one of our Wednesday calls here a few months ago. The third question I asked, are you looking at three days, three weeks, three months, or three years? Because for all of us, getting involved with someone who's in the process of making a decision, understanding their urgency is very important to making sure you're geared and that you don't lose momentum. If you're more eager than they are, you'll lose them. If you're slower than they are, you'll lose them. So you have to gear yourself successfully to their timetable in order to engage, engage them most effectively and most appropriately. And once you understand that, and most advisors figure this out, if a client is always returning the call very quickly, you figure out you better be returning your call pretty quickly. Because two days when they return it in two hours is a disconnect that advisors intuitively figure out in most cases. But those are three things that I use, and it's something that I brought onto one of our Wednesday calls here a couple of months ago, and they said, man, that was really good. And it was interesting to me. A lot of advisors know that sense of momentum and that sense of urgency, but I don't think at least some of our advisors had never heard it articulated in that way. Yeah, well, that's why you're there, I think, to get them, in part, to get them to think about things that perhaps they haven't thought about before, which is where they get the value. I agree. And your food truck advisor, maybe what I hear there is he enjoys what he's doing now, but as he becomes more and more successful, the food truck's the retirement plan. So maybe similar to you, he doesn't ever plan on stopping working, but food truck is like when I'm older. And I was completely good with it. I just wondered why, why we were talking. <laughs> That's a good question. So we've mentioned the word independence uh, a couple of times, but can you go into a little bit more detail about what independence really meant to you? What does it mean to you today? What benefits does it give you? And then how do you use that with your clients? Well, obviously I paid a significant price early on to feel like I had that control and that flexibility and that independence being the key word. I am fascinated, and I've said this at different points in different venues, I'm fascinated at the number of financial advisors that are willing, who, who will say I'm an independent financial advisor, and yet they're interested in working with a broker-dealer or a relationship that isn't. To me, that's antithetical. How, how can you feel like you control your own destiny when the firm that you're working with doesn't? And why would you go through the blood and the sweat and the tears to go independent and then affiliated with a firm that has its constituency upstream, whether it's a board of directors, whether it's public shareholders, whether it's private equity, whether it's a parent insurance company. So for us as an organization, and you may remember this, you know, we organizationally, when we joined Cambridge 10 years ago, our offer for 100 reps was 6%. And we had an alternate offer that was 30 but a firm that we would have been very happy with, at least for a while. We left over $2 million on the table to join Cambridge. So independence for me and for us uh, isn't theoretical. We, we left over $2 million on the table to go with a firm that could control its own destiny 
so that we in turn could control ours. So it's a, it's a hallmark of the way that I'm wired. And I think it's something that appeals and a lot of the advisors that we work with understand intuitively. Yeah, I agree. Our goals around that topic have been very well aligned in the years we've been doing business together. So I appreciate that. So I know you well enough to know that this might be a difficult question for you to answer, but outside of work, so you you mentioned you already work on weekends and you enjoy work, but outside of work, do you have any hobbies? I play golf. I'm fond of saying that the quality of the courses I get to play is going up and the quality of the rounds that I play on them is going down, but I do love the game and I work around the house a lot on the weekend, but again, it's on a random unstructured and, you know, I may start the day on a Saturday morning with 12 things to do. And at the end of the day, I may have only done four and I might've done eight other things. That for me is really important for me to recharge. Yeah, I, th- I think for people like you and I who really love what we do, work tends to be where we choose to spend a lot of our time, not because we have to necessarily, but because we love to. That said, to your earlier points, you do have to have, I have to shift gears, even if it's still work, to your point, work around the house or whatever it may be. And self-awareness around those things is very key. So congratulations on over the years, being able to figure out what keeps you going and, and makes you most productive. Well, and you know, while it's not particularly popular, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about work-life balance. I do spend time thinking about at the end of the day, at the end, whenever the end is, am I going to have regret? I think about that routinely. So I am conscious of where I'm spending my time. And whether I have any regrets about doing that. So I'm thoughtful and I'm aware, but I love what I'm doing and I'm completely comfortable doing it 50 hours a week. And I've told the team around me, my partners, that retirement for me will not will be not shaving every day, reading the Wall Street Journal when I want to, and playing a little bit more golf. There's the dream, the retirement dream right there, listeners. I don't know if it's my dream, but I think because I will always enjoy doing what I'm doing, meeting new advisors, working with them, helping them grow. I imagine doing that indefinitely into the future. Well, that's a ways off, I believe, because I think you've got a lot of plans for your business. So what's next? What's the vision for the future? What do you think the organization, to use your question that you use with advisors, What do you want to be when you grow up and what do you look like in five years? I hope it will be at 100 million in GDC. That was something that the founder, Eric Schwartz, put to me. I think he regrets it at this point. I don't think he knew what he was buying. He was, I don't think he knew what he was inuring to himself by by suggesting it was possible. But I, I think we could grow to 100 million. I think at that point, I can imagine us looking around and being more thoughtful about picking our spots. And there is debate within my team about this, about whether I would slow down at this point, but I don't really pay attention to the debate because I know that if we can get to 100 million, I'll be pretty happy with that and won't feel compelled to double down. And I think I think we will be more thoughtful. And I can imagine focusing in my situation a little bit more on industry stuff rather than just our organization at that point. 
So that's a big goal. But, you know, a big part of it, I mean, Amy, as you all know, goodness, just stop and think about all the things that could happen in the next two, three, four years that affect our business and affect our lives. I mean, the potential of going from a 1099 to a W-2 model, whatever that percentage is, obviously can affect anything and everything that we together as well as individually are contemplating. So I would like for us to get to that point, but it's not something that keeps me awake at night. In reality, our industry has been slow at the pace of change in so many ways, but I don't disagree that I suspect the next five are going to be, you know, that pace is picking up. It's, it's a constant, almost a constant reinvention, potentially, whether that be marketplace demands, technology, availability, regulation, unfortunately. But I think organizations like yours will survive because you're thinking about those things in advance. So we're thrilled to have you trust us enough to build your organization with us. And, and you know, in that regard, one of our management team said to me recently, with broker-dealers continuing to consolidate, why wouldn't you expect the same thing among OSJs? I thought it was a wonderful point. And I think what we bring to the table in terms of that relationship and that sense of community in an environment where there is that increasing consistent consolidation, barring unforeseen development, and the creek not rising, as they say, I think 100 million is doable. And as long as I'm still recognizing the voices of the majority of the advisors on our Wednesday call, without them having to tell me what their name is, I'll feel like what we're doing is manageable and comfortable. You've had significant success. You're clearly on the right path. You are a great example of Cambridge Stronger. Any advice for someone out there who's thinking about getting into our business as a younger person today that you know, maybe you look back and, and note, recognize that there's a difference today than when you got into the business, but what would you tell them? Oh, goodness. We have a lot of discussions about that, certainly for people coming or that are attracted. If I were today sitting in that class in the spring semester of my senior year, I might still have an interest. I think there's a real tension today in, the, in that person like me on sales versus planning or sales versus technical skills. And you've got to kind of figure out how you're wired and what you can do. I view sales as nothing more than being an influencer. I mean, when you are working with your child and you're trying to help them, it's not an authority move. You're attempting to influence them to make a decision. When you're a child working with a parent, you're trying to influence them. And so much of our lives are about influence. I don't view sales as anything more than that. But if you have an aversion to that influencing others, I'm talking about taking control, not talking about being an authority, but if you have an aversion to that, then it, you have to figure out how you're going to make it work. As I look into the future, I think more and more people coming out of a more technical academic realm, the best thing for them to do is to work as a junior and a support staff for someone who's doing what I do or doing what other advisors do until they can get comfortable. And we've got an individual in our firm that worked with us for five years, didn't make it at AXA, came in and did a lot of different administrative things for us. And at this point has made the switch, is involved with 
two or three other practices, one that he bought into with one of our other advisors, but he's well on his way. His income this year will probably be one and a half times any level that it was at any point where he was working for us. So that for me was very encouraging, but it takes some time for people to get comfortable in their skin where they can make that transition from just doing administrative, technical, planning-oriented activities to actually sitting face-to-face with a client where you can influence them on a favorable basis. Thank you for sharing that wisdom. Thank you for being transparent with us today. I know our listeners, I'm sure, took away a lot of tips on, you know, what you have is a very broad perspective because you've done so many things in your almost 40 years. And, you know, you were somebody who worked directly with clients. You've shifted your business and reinvented yourself a couple of times in different ways. The creativity and the choice that our business offers us is always inspiring to hear about. Any last words for our listeners, Greg? Yeah, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. It's why I have so much of it. And it's cheaper to rent it than it is to buy it. So pay attention to people who've been through it before and it'll save you some heartache. Sage advice. Thank you for closing with that. And thank you for joining me today. It was great. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at cambridgestronger.com. That's cambridgestronger.com.